Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Since the inaugural class of inductees in 2010 that consisted of Bill France Sr., Bill France Jr., Junior Johnson, Dale Earnhardt, and Richard Petty, 58 NASCAR legends have been inducted into NASCAR's prestigious Hall of Fame. Come January of 2023, former drivers Matt Kenseth and Herschel McGriff and crew chief Kirk Schumerdine will be added to take that count to 61. They are the icons, the drivers, the crew chiefs, the team owners, and individuals, the ones that are the foundation of stock car racing's greatest success. And over a period of 74 years, there are those incredibly special individuals that have built NASCAR to the awesome sport that it is today. Who are these people and what made them so great? It's their individual talents, individual personalities, and natural ability to drive and maintain race cars as the very best in the world. And collectively, they won an enormous amount of championships, races, and pole positions throughout NASCAR history dating back to February 21st, 1948, the day the racing sanction was formed under the vision and direction and leadership of Bill France Sr. The names are so familiar to all of us and burned so deeply into our minds. Petty, Allison, Baker, Yarborough, Pearson, Waltrip, Wallace, Gordon, Martin, Labonte, Earnhardt, Stewart, Parsons, Weatherly, Elliott, Roberts, Jarrett, Owens, and Flock, and so many more. There are so many greats that are enshrined into the NASCAR Hall of Fame and enjoy NASCAR's highest honor for what they've accomplished on the track and for what they truly meant to our sport. Quite a few legends have not yet been enshrined into their place into the Hall of Fame, but rest assured, they will be inducted in the years that follow. There are so many greats in the NASCAR Hall of Fame, and so many more to come. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski with one with my good buddy, Ben White. And we are up to episode number 68. That's right, 6-8. And we just keep on knocking these things out. Like a, like a Grand Slam home run every single time. And this episode today is going to be yet another Grand Slam because, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Ben, we talked about, or, you know, it was announced, rather, the three inductees for the NASCAR Hall of Fame class of 2022. They'll be inducted in early January of next year. But there's so many names still on that list. I mean, absolute superstars that have not been inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And we've got a number of stories to talk about some of those guys. And, 
you know, maybe we'll, we'll talk a little bit about why some of them had not even been inducted. I mean, there's one guy in particular, we'll, we'll get to him in a moment, that just absolutely blows my mind that he's not in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. But, you know, there have been so many guys that, you know, that have had such great years and great careers in NASCAR, you know, either behind the wheel, on the pit box, team owners, etc. You know, and, and you know, I, I understand that NASCAR, the Hall of Fame, can only have a finite number of inductees. You can't induct everybody, but certainly you want to induct the, the those that are most um, uh, deserving and those who you know have had the greatest careers. But you know, are you kind of surprised when we were talking about this uh, the other day and started you know planning for the show and started you know strategizing? Are you kind of surprised at all the names that still are out there that have not been inducted? Yeah, I am a little bit, Jerry. But uh, you know, there's. There's some greats that are already in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. We're fortunate that there, uh, I guess, we're fortunate there. A lot of them are not yet, but that gives us a lot of, a lot of great names that are coming into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in the next years. And uh, just a little bit of background for some folks that maybe are not totally up to speed on some that aren't. In 2010 is the year that we had our inaugural inaugural class, excuse me, mm-hmm. and that was uh, Bill France Senior who. Uh, formed NASCAR in, in, uh, officially in 1948. And then his son, Bill France Jr., who took over the legacy of his father in 1972 at the helm of NASCAR. And then we had uh, Dale Earnhardt Sr., a seven-time champion. We also had Richard Petty, a seven-time champion, and Junior Johnson, uh, who was instrumental in bringing uh, not only his talents as a race car driver with 50 victories, he also won six championships as a team owner, but also helped to bring R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company into the sport as the first uh, series sponsor uh, in 1971. So that was the inaugural class uh, coming in, of course, in 2010. And since that time, we've just had an array of, of superstars and icons and legends that have come into the NASCAR Hall of Fame since that time. And, and oh, my gosh, just some, some incredible uh, giants and icons that have come in. And uh, but like you said, as we talked about, there's a lot of names that have yet to to uh, to be inducted into the Hall of Fame and some big names that that we'll see in the years to come. Well, and not only that, we have a lot of names like that to talk about, you know, here here on today's show. And, you know, I'm just going to start off with with the guy that absolutely without question, in my opinion, is the number one guy that should be inducted. He should have been inducted years ago. And, you know, a lot of people equate this gentleman with his IndyCar career. He won the Indianapolis 500 four times, seven-time champion, 67 wins, I believe it is, in the IndyCar series, uh, number one of all all time. But there's a gentleman, this, this gentleman also had a very major career in NASCAR. And I think a lot of people kind of, you know, because he only raced, you know, typically two, three, four, six, seven races a year that, you know, he, he maybe didn't get his due in NASCAR that he maybe he deserved. And I'm just going to say his name, AJ Foyt, 128 mm-hmm. starts in NASCAR in the cup series, seven wins, 29 top fives, 36 top tens, nine poles. How in the world can a guy like A.J. Foyt not be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame? It just absolutely boggles my mind. And, you know, uh, again, some great stories about A.J., uh, you know, over the years. He's 
you know, he won the Daytona 500. He won the Indy 500. He won Le Mans. I mean, he's, he's won pretty much anything. It's anything out there. But does it surprise you that AJ has not been inducted up to this point? I mean, at the very least, now I know he was up for this past year again for the Pioneer Award, and he came in second uh, to Mike Helton. But, I mean, are you kind of surprised that, uh, you know, that he has not won the, you know, uh, he's not been, uh, you know, elected or, or not, inducted, rather, into the NASCAR Hall of Fame? Yeah, I would, I would think so. I mean, AJ Foyt. Uh, is one of those guys that even if you just said AJ, you know who you're talking about. We have an AJ Allmendinger, uh, which is an awesome, he is an awesome race driver in his own right. But when you say AJ on a historical level, you know exactly who you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to be able to get into a stock car uh, early in the game, I believe 64 was his first season in the, in the NASCAR uh, Cup Series. Uh, I think that's right. And but to come in and win the the uh, Daytona 500 in 1972 for the Wood Brothers, and then have IndyCar obligations, of course, turn that car over to David Pearson that year. And uh, again, April 16th, 1972 at Darlington, and of course Pearson wins at Darlington that day with the car. But yeah, AJ won uh, seven times in the Cup Series. Uh, all of those were Super Speedway victories. Um, yeah, the the name AJ. You know who you're talking about, and just super techs, the guy who could he could win in, in anything with wheels, and but most of his career, of course, and his successes were in the IndyCar side. But yeah, there's a huge difference between driving a stock car and IndyCar. But he's one of those like a Bobby Allison type. He could win in anything, and uh, yeah, I, I want he will uh, be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, just not quite there yet. But uh, a, a big name in auto racing all over the world, and. I know people in other countries, when you say A.J. Foyt, they know who you're talking about, very much like a Richard Petty, who is an icon in, in all, all types of auto racing, for sure. Yeah, you know, and, and you mentioned about uh, A.J., you know, being A.J. Foyt, and then it's obviously Anthony Joseph Foyt, and then mm -hmm. the, there's A.J. Allmendinger, but we also missed one other A.J. that um, not too many people call him by this name, but there's another guy that could go by A.J., and that would be other, otherwise known as Tony Stewart, Anthony Joseph yeah. Stewart. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, and he was named after AJ Foyt as well, too. And so, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it just kind of boggles my mind because, you know, AJ Foyt, you know, has done so much for the world of motorsports. And, you know, going back into his career, I'm looking at some of his stats. I mean, the guy, and, and this really boggles my mind, but then again, this is AJ Foyt we're talking about. His last race, was 1996 in a Camping World Truck Series event. He was 61 years old. He made two starts in that series. Didn't do too well in either of the races, but still 61 years old and you're driving a truck. I mean, that to me is just, you know, a phenomenal thing. And, you know, I'm going to give you, I don't want to get off too, up, too off the beaten path here, but uh, the one thing about AJ and this, you know, I mean, I watched him so many times, you know, at Indianapolis. I watched him several times in the, you know, in racing in the Cup Series. Um, you know, I also saw him, um, you know, he had a, um, a big auction. I think it was like maybe the mid 90s, I think, or late 90s, where he auctioned off a lot of his memorabilia at uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I mean, there were tens of thousands of people that turned out because they wanted to be, you know, get a piece of, of history, a, uh, you know, a piece of the legend, if you will. But the one thing that kind of, um, you know, kind of, it, it's, it's not a good memory, 
but it is a memory nonetheless. I believe it was 1992, I think it was, or 93, something like that. He was actually in an IndyCar race uh, in at Road America, which ironically enough is where IndyCar is racing this weekend. And I know this is a NASCAR show, but you know, bear with me for a second, folks. AJ was coming out of uh, going into turn one, lost his brakes, and we almost lost AJ. I, I will never forget that day, Ben, because you know they had to life flight him out of the uh, out of Road America to to hospital in in, um, in uh, Milwaukee. It was very touch and go there for for a while. I mean, you know, there was uh, there was a lot of talk that you know he was not going to make it, and yet. Not only did he make it, he came back to race again, you know, in, in the IndyCar world. And then, of course, you know, he raced for a little bit again, like I said, in, in the truck series as well, too, for in 95 and 96, three races and starts, uh, three race starts in the truck series. So, you know, a tough guy, you know, um, he's always been true to his roots. I mean, yes, he's known for his IndyCar uh prolifics but at the same time his nascar prolifics i think are definitely worth um worthwhile because you know he may not have had you know 200 wins like like uh, richard petty or he may not have had 76 wins and seven championships like dale earnhardt uh or you know petty of course obviously had seven championships but i think just his name his merit his legacy as a race car driver of, in all across all platforms to me that that signifies that A.J. Foyt should be in the Hall of Fame, in NASCAR's yeah. Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I believe so, too, Jerry. And another uh, a good memory uh, of A.J. Foyt was at Indianapolis, I believe, in 1992, when we had a test session prior to mm-hmm. the Brickyard 400, the inaugural Brickyard right. 400. And he had a car up there that he was testing, but just, just for kicks and giggles, Earnhardt uh, let him get in the three-car and test the three-car and I don't think fans really knew it was him in the car after he took about five or six laps until he came in and he crawled out of the three car. And there was a lot of people there for that test session. I don't know what that number was, but it was a large, large crowd for that. And of course the crowd went nuts when they saw AJ crawl out of the three car and, and Earnhardt had a big grin on his face because it was sort of a, a quiet thing saying, Hey, would you like to take, the three car out uh, and and test it. He said, I wouldn't turn that down for any amount of money. (laughs) And so he crawled in it, took the three car out for, I don't know how many laps, five or 10 laps. And then, like I said, crawled out on, on uh, pit road and the, the, the crowd went nuts knowing that AJ had had gotten in the three car. And uh, so, yeah, he was just, when you say Indianapolis, you immediately think of AJ Foyt. And but he was a he was a great stock car driver. He drove for Haas Ellington, mm-hmm. the number twenty eight car. He drove his own number uh, fourteen car, and many other uh, Cup Series races. And any like like we said uh, going into this segment, uh, he won seven times. And so yeah, he he can drive anything or did could drive anything when he was driving. And then he made a, a great uh, team owner as an IndyCar team owner. So. Uh, everything autosports uh, was was AJ Foyt for sure. So yeah, I, I know I feel very very confident he'll be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame at some point for sure. Exactly. And one thing I'm going to correct myself. I inadvertently said that <clears throat> that um, Mike Helton was uh, the uh, was chosen for the uh, the Pioneer Award. That he actually won the Landmark Award, uh, but AJ came in second. Uh, to Herschel McGriff for the Pioneer Awards. So mm-hmm. the three gentlemen that were inducted or that will be inducted in January of 2023, 
were Herschel McGriff in the Pioneer Award, as well as Kirk Shelmerdine, the, the immortal crew chief, and then um, my, uh, Matt Kenseth, and then, of course, the Landmark Award, Mike Helton as well, too. So, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, looking at some of these other names, Ben, and we've got such a long list of names here, but, you know, obviously, A.J. Foyt, to me, stands out, but you, we can go down the list of guys, you know, uh, you know, both Back in the day, some of the pioneers of the sport, but then a lot of guys, you know, current, uh, well, when I say current, I mean, you know, race within the last 10, 15, 20 years, guys like Jeff Burton, Ricky Rudd, um, you know, um, uh, Carl Edwards, uh, you know, and and they, they, you know, came up short again, too, as well. But, you know, there's just so many big names out there. And the one guy, one of the guys that, you know, we talked about this um, yesterday when we were kind of, uh, you know, plotting their strategy for the show today. Um, I've mentioned the name Tim Brewer, crew chief, extraordinaire, in my opinion. And I did a story on Tim uh, about a month or so ago. This was actually before the um, uh, induction took, or the um, selection process took place. And Tim, you know, we talked for an hour and a half and we could probably talk for another three hours. The man is just a wealth of, of uh, NASCAR history. Uh, another guy that, you know, won a number of championships. I think he won two uh, cup championships as a crew chief, um, you know, worked for Junior Johnson for so many years, um, you know, was one of the, in my opinion, one of the best uh, technical um, announcers, if you will, you know, when he was with ESPN, you know, he really gave a lot of, um, um, you know, um, great information and hit, what, what do they call it? The, um, um, uh, oh, what was it called? I can't, I'm drawing a blank here. The, the garage, it was something with garage that he had, but, you know, he was just um, a very astute individual and translated from his expertise of setting up a car and fixing a car and, and doing everything he did as a crew chief to becoming a broadcaster. And, you know, a lot of people said that he was actually probably a better broadcaster than he was a crew chief. And he was a pretty darn good crew chief to begin with as it was. So, but I mean, uh, Tim Brewer, I mean, just so many stories of him, um, you know, and also his time with Junior Johnson, he left Junior, then he came back there after a while. He, you know, he's crew chief for Daryl Waltrip. Um, tell me about, you know, Tim Brewer. What, 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 what sticks out in your mind about Tim Brewer? Well, well, the thing I love about Tim is he actually started with Richard Childers back when Richard was running his own car up in Winston-Salem in a very small uh, shop up there off of what they call Gumtree Road, which is and when you talk to the all the, the RCR folks, the veteran RCR folks, you, all you got to do is say Gumtree Road and they know exactly what you're talking about. The the shop up there probably, in all honesty, is about the same size as the lobby area of what is now RCR Enterprises. <laughs> it's, it's really small, no kidding. And right. actually, actually, there was a time in my life in 1980 when I actually worked for Richard as a crew member in that same building. And I didn't go on the road when I worked for them. I was uh, one of the really young guys there that stacked tires and, and used the pressure washer on the cars when they came back from races. So I'm familiar with the building. But Tim was working for Richard in the very, very early days of RCR when, when they had about 10 or 11, 12 guys at the very most. And we're talking about the guy who emptied the trash cans, which is probably me, to be honest with you. <laughs> and and uh, there was nobody there. And so Tim grew up with Richard uh, and he helped them and, and talking about junior in those days uh, when junior Johnson needed to test a part or try a part uh, before he put it on Cal year, 
Kelly Arbery's cars, he would get Richard to run them back when Richard was driving the race cars. And so if there was an alternator or some type of part that he wanted to test, well, let's take it down to Gumtree Road for Richard to put it on his car to see if it's going to work. And so that's how far Tim goes back. So later on, uh, Tim left Richard to go to Junior Johnson's team. But see, the thing about Tim, he was what you respectfully called a shade tree type crew chief. And he would, you know, he would run things and he, he was very technical, yes, but he could explain to the fan listening on television what a particular part would do and, and explain it in such a way where it wasn't as technical uh, so they could understand it. That's why right. he was so good behind the microphone. And he didn't get over their head like, say, an engineer or something would do. Uh, he could just explain it in layman's terms as to how this particular sway bar would work or this particular uh, rear end housing or rear end gear would work on, on a particular racetrack. And so that's why Tim was so good, but he was, it was more of a trial and error type uh, crew chief, but he was extremely, he is extremely smart. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's what made him so good as a crew chief. And so, yeah, he's another one of those guys. And, and we talked about drivers, crew chiefs, team owners uh, that will eventually become a member of the NASCAR hall of fame, just like Kirk Shelmerdine. He was, so good. And what I love about Kirk is they could be at Bristol two laps down needing to, to win the race, needing points desperately to win the championship and the worst possible hole they could be in. And Tim was the same way. And the announcer would walk up to them and say, you're down three, two laps, three laps. And it looks like the end of the day and the end of your run, and you're going to lose the title for the year. What's going to happen. And, and neither, both of them would say, well, this is what I think we need to do. And this to be as calm and collected as they could possibly be, or the windshields caving in. We're here at Talladega, and this is what you know. What are you going to do if you come into pit? You're going to lose the race. Nah, it'll be all right. We'll we'll be fine. <laughs> right. You know, and just be so so calm and collect, collected, and said, you know, we'll we're we're going to fall another lap down. We'll be, we'll be fine. Those types of things that made them so calm, and then at the end of the day, they get that lap back and they'd win the race, and that's what made them so good on pit road because they were great leaders, and they could gather up their crews and say, "All right, this is what's got to happen. We need a great pit stop. We need it to be below 12, 15 seconds. We're going to change left sides, and we're going to get him back out, and we're going to get him in the lead. We're going to win the race. Okay, no big deal." And that's the way they were leaders on pit road and great crew chiefs. And both Tim and Kirk were that way. And, and again, I think that's why, why Tim Brewer will eventually become a NASCAR hall of famer in the years to come. Very collected, very cool and pressure situations. You know, and by the way, um, I, I remember the name. It was the tech garage in ESPN when he was on ESPN. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a, such a simple name to remember. And I couldn't remember that. So I apologize for that. But, yeah. you know, but, you know, you, you raise a good point. There, there's so much similarity in the sense between Shelmerdine and Brewer. And where I'm going with this is Shelmerdine waited a number of years when he probably should have been inducted three, four, maybe even five years ago. And mm-hmm. he finally, you know, finally received his due and he will be inducted in, in, uh, in January. But I think Brewer, you can make the same kind of case that, okay, he didn't get inducted this time, but 
it's it's going to happen the next year or two or three. I think that, you know, very much like Shelmerdine, because, you know, uh, there was so much conversation when Shelmerdine first became um, uh, eligible to to be to be uh, selected that. A lot of people said, well, he'll be a first ballot, uh, you know, nominee or uh, inductee, and he wasn't. And I think if I remember correctly, Kirk went, I want to say four years, maybe five years uh, that he was up for, uh, uh, um, you know, he was nominated. And then he, you know, he did not get um, get inducted or get, get selected rather. So finally he was. So I still think Brewer will get it in the next two or three times around, but um, just a lot of similarities between those two guys. Yeah, there really are. And even in listening to Kirk talk about uh, being selected uh, to be inducted, his initial thoughts were, I'm truly honored and yet shocked because he really didn't think he was going to go in this quickly, honestly, because he thought he was going to be selected. Maybe he thought he was going to be selected, just didn't think it's going to happen this fast because you've got uh, the likes of, say, Harry Hyde still that it's not there. and. You know, and and talking about Harry just a minute, I mean, let me see if I can um, describe Harry. And I guess the best way to do it is if you were to go back and look at the the movie Days of Thunder, and and there's a lot of things about Days of Thunder that aren't accurate. Uh, Sorry to pop everybody's bubble, but there's some. (laughs) No, you just popped my bubble there, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But but at the same time, if you want to look for somebody that could uh, be exactly like uh, Harry Hyde, Robert Duvall nailed it. I mm-hmm. mean, absolutely, totally nailed uh, Harry Hyde. Harry's the old cra- crafty, uh, crusty old crew chief that wouldn't take any crap off of any NASCAR official. He was playful. He was uh, very, very smart. Matter of fact, I think he was the first guy that came up with tire stagger. And what I mean by tire stagger is that he was the first to discover that when you got some of those older tires, not the radials, but the older tires, that they would grow as they got hotter. So he was the first one to kind of discover that. And, you know, you'd see in the old days, you'd see crew members who would go around the tire, measuring the tire with a tape measure. And what they were trying to determine was how much did the tire grow as it got hotter. And, and Harry sort of discovered that in the late 60s. And he just, he was very tricky about things and he understood tires. He understood engines. He understood some things that some other crew members didn't understand. But I mean, seriously, if you, if you want to know what Harry Hyde was like to a T, go back and watch that and study Robert Duvall playing that part. He, you know, he should have gotten an Academy Award from that alone, being able to, to be some like someone else. And, I knew Harry uh, pretty well before he sadly passed away. And he was just, he was the kind of guy that was up at three thirty four in the morning and went to bed at midnight. He was just de- totally dedicated about making cars go fast and being the best crew chief possible. But he used the old strings uh, method about getting the toe set up on race cars. He, he wasn't an engineer type. He was the old school type. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and, and Harry's another one that you know you're still scratching your head. Why is he not there yet? Uh, he he was just the the best. Worked with Bobby Isaac for years uh, back in the KK Insurance uh, Nord Crosskoff days, mm-hmm. making helping to get Bobby Isaac the, the, the championship in 1970. 
uh, and then he went to work, kind of had a hiatus for a few years. And then Rick Hendrick called him and said, would you come to work for me? And that scene in Days of Thunder about him being on the tractor and, and uh, you know, being pulled off the tractor to come back and, and be there and come back as a crew chief, that's pretty accurate too. You know, Harry wanted to come back to the Cup Series and and Rick gave him a second shot and you see what happened. He made Tim Richmond a winner and, and Jeff Bodine a winner. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he was the old, you know, crusty old crew chief that did it the, his way or the highway. And, but he was great. And he's, he's another one up to, to possibly be inducted and he will be. The, that's the thing. All these guys that you see on this list uh, eventually are going to be put in the hall of fame. I feel very confident that will be yeah. what year. I don't know, but they're the, the best of the best. And uh, we're going to see those guys go in at some point. I, I got to ask you this about Harry Hyde. Um, did Robert Duvall t- to your knowledge? I mean, I don't know this. That's why I'm asking you, <coughs> excuse me. Did Robert Duvall um spend time with Harry prior to the movie being filmed to really pick up on all, all of Harry's um, characteristics, his intri- intricacies, all that kind of thing. I mean, was there, did- um, I, I don't know that to be honest, Jerry, I, I feel like it's possible because Robert Duvall is one of these types that when he studies someone um, he, he really, really gets into the character I mean, he really studies, reads about them, watches video on them. Mm-hmm. I can say this. If he didn't get with him personally, I'm certain that he watched as much video as he could with him, uh, on him. Um, he is one of those actors that will just just absorb the person he's trying to uh, mimic or, or play. But, I mean, I was amazed when I watched it. And I've heard the late Tom Higgins say it. And I've heard Steve Wade say it. Uh, others that have known... Uh, Harry, like myself, that knew him a little better, probably a lot better than I did, but uh, just nailed him. I mean, he was just right. Every action and every movement and every uh, pause and phrase. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I was just amazed when I saw him because I really thought I was watching Harry Hyde on screen. He, he did it enormously and, and right to the letter of how Harry would break up his phrases and, and even sounded like him. And and uh, but Harry was a lot of fun too. That you know he could he could tell jokes. He could I mean all the things. I, I can't say enough good about Harry. But a great great crew chief. And and if he didn't believe in something, he would he didn't care who he said he didn't believe it to. Even Bill France Senior, if he come down with some rule change, you know he would basically call up Bill France Senior and say I don't believe what you're doing. <laughs> To the point where Rick Henry say, now, Harry, you just got to calm down. (laughs) That's going to cause me problems. Well, all right. Okay. All right, uh, Rick. But that's just not right what they're doing. And you just don't need to be. I know. I know. But that's not that's not what we need to do, Harry. And there are some funny stories about team meetings that, uh, you know, Rick would think that he had everything smoothed out between uh, his drivers and and everything was going to go back to business. And. Harry would walk in the team meeting and just disrupt everything Rick had already built for an hour, those types of things. So, I mean, Harry had his way of doing things and he was a great crew chief, but you had to reel him in sometimes and getting Tim Richmond and Harry Hyde on the same page was a nightmare. The first half of their time together uh, in 1986, I believe. And then they finally started communicating 
and I started winning and winning and winning. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was tough to, to get Harry reeled in at times, but he was a great crew chief and, and that'll show that he'll eventually get in the hall of fame. No doubt. Right. Let me throw a couple more names at you. And again, you would have think that by now, <clears throat> especially with the overall success that they had in their careers, um, two guys, uh, actually, uh, well, two, yeah, two guys come out to mind here, Banjo Matthews, and this guy really blows my mind, Ralph Moody. Neither one mm -hmm. of them is in the Hall of Fame. I mean, Ralph, to me, was one of the, you know, the 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 true pioneers of the sport. I mean, the, in, in the sense that how he changed things and how he, you know, was such an innovator. And, you know, he had, you know, uh, the Holman Moody organization and, and the team and all that kind of stuff. I mean, let's, let's talk about, about Ralph first, then we'll go we'll circle back with Banjo Matthews. But tell me about Ralph Moody, the, the kind of guy he was. Sure. Ralph Moody was a former race driver uh, in the 50s and won some races. I think he won four races, if I'm not mistaken about that. And just a, a great racer and and uh, could drive a race car very well. And then when he teamed up with, uh, with John Holman to form Holman Moody, it was more like he was the mechanical side of that. And, mm -hmm. and John Holman was the business side of that. And Ford Motor Company put the two of them together and built this incredible uh, race car factory, if you will. And back in those days, you didn't have a race car factory like you would. Let's see if I can put this in perspective. Uh, Holman Moody was sort of like uh, the Hendrick Motorsports campus, if you will, now. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have that in the early 60s. I mean, it was like a race car factory. And I've, we've talked about this on other podcasts, but if I had Ben White had uh, $15,000 to blow. And I decided one Thursday morning, I wanted to be a race car driver. I could go to the front office of Holman Moody and I could say, I want to turn key forward to drive three weeks from now at Bristol or wherever. And I would go in and I tell them I want it to be red or blue or white or black. And I would come back three weeks later and they would say, okay, Mr. White, your, your Ford is ready. And it would be turnkey. And they would start at one end of this thing, and it would be an assembly line type situation to where they start with a chassis and roll cage and drop a motor in it, put a body on it. Mm -hmm. And and to put this in perspective, everybody else, other than Petty Enterprises, but they didn't sell their cars. Uh, they raced theirs, but uh, everyone else had these little small shops behind their houses or whatever, and they built their own race cars. Now, if you wanted to buy a car from home, Moody, you could, but if you were, say, a Bobby Allison or a Donnie Allison or those, you know, racing week to week, but you literally could go and if you could pass NASCAR's uh, test to say if you could drive a car, then you could just go buy one and, and pass their tests on the racetrack and you could be a so-called race driver. But uh, that's what home and Moody was until about 1971 when Ford said, we've accomplished what we want to, we've built all the cars we want to build. And that's when Holman Moody basically shut their doors. Mm -hmm. But from about 1956 or seven till about 1970, 71, they were building race cars for everybody and they would repair race cars. If you had one, you know, taken the side off of one or damaged one, you could take it back to home and Moody and they'd fix it for you for a price. So that's what home and Moody was. But back to Ralph Moody, 
he was the mechanical side of things and John was the business side and they, they entered races with David Pearson, Bobby Allison, because they wanted to showcase what they could do as far as, Hey, we can build winning race cars. Uh, so that's, that's what Ralph Moody did. And then when the, uh, Holman Moody closed their doors and he had his own, uh, you know, he built cars on his side, but he also just had a normal business, a, a car restoration type business and a, you know, a place where you could bring your passenger car uh, to have repairs made. But now a little further into the seventies, when Janet Guthrie came into uh, NASCAR uh, with the help of Humpy Wheeler, Ralph Booty came back and was her crew chief in Mm -hmm. 1976 and seven, Mm -hmm. when she entered some races and did quite well. And uh, so he was still there, but yeah, he's, he has a long history of more so as a mechanic crew chief team owner than maybe a lot more so than he did as a driver. But when you say home and Moody, he is the the Moody side of the home and Moody puzzle or, or a combination, I should say. Let me ask you the best. And, and you said something that kind of struck me. The, you know, home and Moody was so good in building cars for other teams and selling them. And they made a lot of money that way. No question about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But, and this may be a hard question to, to answer, but would the entire organization, the Holman Moody organization, have been better off not selling cars and really just doing things on their own? Could they have essentially, I mean, they, they dominated the sport with the cars they sold, but could they have dominated the sport even more with the cars they would have kept for themselves? Yeah, they, they probably could have, sure. Uh it was just something Ford Motor Company wanted to do. Uh, and I don't, I'm not sure how many cars that they actually sh- sold to individuals, uh, the, the rich types who wanted to come in. And not, I'm sure there weren't that many, but they did sell to other individual people mm-hmm. who were already in the sport. Um, and, but a lot, of, a lot of what they were doing was making sure that they had cars to put on the racetrack for themselves, but they did sell cars to others. You know, Mario Andretti uh, drove some cars for them and mm-hmm. fielded cars for Fred Lorenzen and, right. like I said, Bobby Allison, uh, David Pearson. Uh, so, yeah, there, there was a lot of drivers that drove their cars throughout the, the 60s uh, and early, a few races in the early 70s, uh, 70, 71, until they finally ended it. But a lot of their cars were for, for their own purposes. But, yes, they would sell cars to other teams who ran Fords. And, uh, yeah, uh, but it, there weren't that many. There were a few people who had the money to buy them. But uh, some of the teams that raced regularly would buy cars from them. Uh, but it wasn't a lot of rich types that would just saunder in and say, Oh, I just want to buy four of your cars. It didn't happen a lot, but sometimes it did. So, okay. But they didn't stay. They didn't stay long. Uh, but they did provide cars for some as, as throughout the sixties. Yes, right. Let's let's talk about a guy with one of the most unique nicknames of all, Banjo Matthews. Again, another guy that has not been inducted into the Hall of Fame. He was on this past year's um, uh, fan vote, um, and he—I'm um, sorry, no, he was not on the fan vote. He was. Uh, 
I, uh, on the Pioneer ballot, and he was a part of the uh, group that had Sam Ard, A.J. Foyt, Banjo Matthews, Herschel McGriff, who was selected, and Ralph Moody. Tell us about, about Banjo. I mean, just such a great name, but also a great character as well, too. Yeah, sure. Well, Banjo, again, another one of those guys who started off driving race cars for many years, and then he elected to, uh, instead of drive them, decided to field cars for other drivers. Uh, he had a shop around Asheville, North Carolina, and some top-name guys drove for him. One particularly, Cale Yarborough, uh, had some success. Donnie Allison won some big races uh, for him at Rockingham and at the Coca or then World 600, not Coca-Cola 600, then at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Uh, but Banjo uh, was a prominent car builder later on when he stopped fielding cars uh, of for other drivers, he just built cars for other drivers, uh, and was well. His chassis under those bodies were well known, and a lot of for, for a lot of years, people would go and buy what they called a banjo chassis mm -hmm. uh, to, to, and then they would just simply put their own uh, car bodies and such on them, and uh, just very well respected. One of the most familiar stories, of course, is when Kelly Yarborough was racing for the lead with uh, Sam McQuag in the 1965 Southern 500, the same race that Ned Jarrett won by 14 laps that day. And racing with Sam and Kale went over the wall at Darlington, what was then for the first and second turns. And, of course, everybody was really concerned about Kale's safety and making sure he was okay. And here comes Kale crawling up the fence and crossed over the track, combing his hair. And uh, it's like, uh, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. But you know, I've, got, I've got to go tell Banjo that I bent his car. Well, yeah, you bent <laughs> his car. You totaled his car. Right. But yeah, that's he went over the fence there. It's a 65 uh, Ford Galaxy, red number 27 uh, car. Abington Motor Company was the sponsor that day on Kale's car. But he did flip it and went down the bank. That's one of the most memorable times uh, during the, one of the Southern 500s there at Darlington. But yeah, but Banjo was a very quiet sort of guy. But for many years, he he built cars for others and uh, mostly chassis. But he would put bodies on there if you ask him to. And mm -hmm. very well known uh, as a car builder. But yes, he raced many races prior to that. And uh, like I say, in the uh, late 60s, he decided to start building cars so throughout the 70s he was a, a well-known car builder uh, and competitor and and uh, just a beloved uh, competitor in the sport so another one that uh, everybody had a lot of respect and love for was, was banjo exactly i need to correct one other thing i said about earlier it's uh the uh matt kenseth herschel griff mike helton and kirk shelmerding will be the class of 2023 i kept on saying 2022 because we got all screwed up with the you know the covid thing and everything but they will be mm -hmm. part of the class of 2023 that will be inducted in 2023 so i want to make sure i had that right a couple more names i want to throw at you ben um a guy that you know well two guys uh you know race kind of in the same era um, one, sadly, we lost um, in a racing incident down in Daytona, 
And then the other one is still with us um, and still very, um, very uh, charismatic even today. I think he's pushing 80, if I'm not mistaken. But the two guys I want to mention are Neil Bonnet and Harry Gant. Let's start with mm-hmm. Harry Gant, first of all. I mean, you know, Harry, I think it was you that uh, told me this story a few weeks back, if I remember correctly, that was it the Southern 500, I think it was, that he won or maybe it was it was one of the Darlington races, if I remember correctly. And somebody called him up the next day and, and his uh, one of his children answered the phone and said, oh, yeah, he's putting it up fence post or something like that. I, I remember that. Yeah. I mean, he was just well, one of those kind of guys. Yeah, well, he, he's a workaholic. And still, uh, last time I saw him, he, he's 82 now. And I saw him at the press conference when they announced North Wilkesboro mm-hmm. when the governor was there a few weeks back. And the person that was uh, <laughs> actually putting up the fence post was me. <laughs> and I was I was doing an interview with him. He said, well, I've got time to do the interview, but do you mind uh, putting your tape recorder? It was a tape recorder then. And he said, do you mind putting your tape recorder on that that fence post and you can help me dig these? And I said, sure, <laughs> I don't mind doing that. So we actually did an interview doing putting up fence posts. First time I've ever put fence posts up during an interview. But I reminded him of that when I saw him at Wilkesburg and he got a big chuckle out of that. Yeah, I remember us doing that together. Yeah, I do too. And I <laughs> But he, he's an amazing guy because he, he would race on during the weekends and build houses uh, on, during the week. And, you know, I admire him for the fact that he said, when I turn 50, I'm going to retire no matter what. And I think he turned 50 in 1994. And that was the year that he retired. And he was driving for Leo Jackson. And uh, he just stuck to his plan. He said, well, that's when I'm going to retire. So he did. And uh, he's in great health, though. I mean, it was great to see him again. He remembered me, and we got to talking about some short track stuff. And that day after the press conference was was over, and we set up a time to do an interview later on for one of the magazines I write for. And just, you know, I've always been amazed by the fact that he is always in good health and just always on the go, and he's never slowed down. He had a steakhouse there in Taylorsville for many years, and that's no longer in business. He just decided to close it, but he was very successful with that and everything he does. And, you know, back in 1991, he won four races in a row. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. They called him Mr. September. It was late right. in the year. Right. Right. And just, you know, he just, he was running really well and he drove for Andy Petrie for, for several years. And then, uh, you know, Andy went to work for Richard Childress and worked for Dale Earnhardt, and, and then he s- switched over to Leo Jackson and drove for him. But yeah, and you know, everybody knows uh, Harry Gant, and I'm, I'm happy to tell everyone listening that Harry's in great shape and he's doing very well. And he did admit to me that he's I'm a lot older now and I'm not doing as much as I used to. And that definition to me is well, you know, he's he's roofing two houses and he's you know. <laughs> you know, painting another fence and he quits for lunch. That's what he slowed down. (laughs) But no, he's, he's doing well. He's doing good. So yeah. Uh, Harry uh, is just one of those guys that you love to talk to. And of course he, when you ask him a question, he's sort of like Robert Yates and 15 minutes later, uh, you know, you've, you've he, now what was your next question? <laughs> but no, he, he's great. I love Harry. He's a good guy. Right. Right. All right. Let's talk about Neil Bonnet. Uh, yeah. You know, um, just a, you know, uh, another guy that has not been inducted in the Hall of Fame. And sadly, his career was cut tragically short 
Um, you know, and, and, you know, I, 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 I can't even think of the right words to say other than that had he not, had we not lost him, he would have been an even bigger star than he already was. I mean, to me, he was almost like, you know, he was already a star, but he could have been a lot bigger and, 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 and more well-known and more successful, but unfortunately we lost him. Tell us about Neil Bonnet. Oh man, I tell you, I love Neil so much. He was so much fun to talk to and so down to earth. I think that's what I was most impressed about when it came to Neil. He could go out and win the biggest race of the year and come back in and prop his feet up and have a Coke and ask me, so what are you doing this week? <laughs> what are you working on? Or what's that next article you think you're going to write? And none, nothing like that. The success never phased Neil at all. He would he would win, like I said, the biggest race of the season. And they say, Hey, you want to get together next week and I'll help you paint your building or whatever. And I just, a remarkable driver, remarkable friend. And yeah, you're right. We were so saddened to learn of his passing. It was February 11th, 1994 at Daytona. And he was practicing uh, for that year's Daytona 500 uh, that was going to come up the next week. And, you know, we all, we all subtly tried to say, Neil, you've done your thing. Uh, you you got a great career in broadcasting and it's working out mm -hmm. well. He was working with CBS and working with Ken Squire and it was so natural behind the microphone. He, he just, he fell right into that. And he liked Tim Brewer was really good with just explaining things on a, on a level where everyone could understand what a car was doing or why a particular driver made whatever move on the racetrack in the long term, uh, as far as what it was going to, how it would affect the driver uh, by the end of the race, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. He was just so good at being able to come down and, and explain things. And he said, no, I just really, really want to get back in the race car. And he had been back in a car for Childress, uh, Richard Childress in 1993 at Talladega, flipped a car, but he was okay, didn't get hurt. And he ran one more race in Atlanta to sort of help Dale Earnhardt uh, ice the 1993 championship. He had some engine trouble, uh, during in the early stages of that race, but that was his last start, but he had a deal with James Finch for 1994. I think it was six, eight races. And, uh, he was so excited about doing that. And he announced it at New Hampshire in 90, uh, 93. And then he went out for that practice session. Something went wrong. The other drivers had told him, said this particular tire we're running. If you get in some kind of trouble, just spin it out. And don't try to correct. And that's my understanding what happened that he, out of instinct, I think he tried to correct and, uh, and got into the wall and mm -hmm. uh, we lost him and uh, a very, very, very sad speed weeks. We also lost Rodney Orr that, that same time, about two days later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, in another crash and, uh, I don't know, it's just very sad, but Neil on a happier note, Neil was just a lot of fun, a great racer came back from a really bad crash in 87 at Charlotte in the October 500 shattered his right leg. And, and I admire him for coming back so hard, uh, you know, because he worked really, really hard in therapy to get back for the 88 season and he won at Rockingham and Richmond, which is mm -hmm. and finished fourth at Daytona 
in the 500, which is miraculous that he did that well. And he was kidding with us at Richmond. I remember him saying, well, if I, if I'd known I was going to be doing this good, I didn't know I, I had to break my other leg. I didn't realize I was going to do this good, you know, that kind of thing. It's always, always funny. I always saying funny things. Right. And of course, sadly, we lost him in 94, but yes, uh, he's another one that, you know, how could he not, uh, be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame at some point because he was just beloved by the media, beloved by the fans, by the the media, the the television industry, and just a natural, a natural as a driver, a natural as a broadcaster, and just I think about him all the time. I don't know, you know, but I think about Dale and I think about Davey, and these these people were family. Mm-hmm. After you after you cover them for so long, they become such great friends that you think of them as family. And I, I think about him all the time. Something will remind me of him that, you know, I see a photo or I, I hear something on the radio or something will remind me of, of Neil and all these people all the time. So great memories. That's what I take with me all the time. And sometimes I'll fire up the YouTube videos and, and watch him uh, and hearing his voice on, you know, in victory lane, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So just super guy, super. Guy. Exactly. A couple more guys I want to talk to you about, and then we're going to talk a little bit about more of the modern era guys. I got a few more. I mm-hmm. want to talk about that, but, but two guys that in my mind, that's, <clears throat> excuse me, stand out the King of the then Bush series, Sam Ard. Uh, you know, I yeah. mean, if, if you talk to Kyle Bush, I remember this very clearly, Kyle, was very effusive about uh, Sam Ard. I mean, he was, you know, Kyle's a, you know, Kyle and his brother, Kurt, are both, um, they're historians of the sport, just like we are. I mean, they really have studied the past. And I remember a conversation I had with Kyle. We're talking probably, oh, this has got to be at least 15 years ago. But he was just, I mean, he could tell you stuff about Sam Ard that I don't even know if Sam Ard knew this kind of stuff, you know. T- tell right. me a little bit about Sam Ard. I mean, you know, because, I mean, you know, he... He's kind of set the bar. Uh, Kyle Busch, like I said, was a very much of a, uh, a fan and a historian of Sam Art. Mark Martin, another guy that uh, talked a lot about Sam Art. Tell us a little bit about Sam Art. And then I also want to talk about Larry Phillips as well. But let's talk about Sam first. Okay. Um, well, here's something that you can do just for fun on a, on a slow Friday night. If you can find the movie The Last American Hero. Right, right. It was, right, right. It was um, uh, Jeff Bridges' first major role. Uh, and it was based on Junior Johnson's life. And there is some great footage in there of Sam Ard's 1965 Chevrolet. It was a double, it was solid white with double zeros. And it had Thomas Brothers Country Ham as the sponsor. And that's well, every time I think about Sam, I think about that iconic uh, Chevrolet that he raced. And it was all, all over the Southeast, South Boston, and all these great, great racetracks. And he was just such a tremendous short track driver, late model driver. Uh, and he just, he would win everywhere. And of course, I think he won some races at Charlotte Motor Speedway as well. Uh, you know, back in the early days of the Xfinity series. Mm-hmm. But, and, and of course that car got upgraded uh, as time went on, but it still carried those iconic white and red, white colors with the red numerals. But just just a tremendous racer that was happy uh, with running in that series, but a, a great rate, late model driver. I think he raced at Caraway Speedway some and, and just around Ashboro there. Just because I think that's where Thomas Brothers Country Ham was based. And I, I just can't 
I can't say enough good about the man. He was just so good. And as a matter of fact, he runs some races at Darlington Raceway too in the Xfinity Series as well. And just that was his home, and that's where he excelled. And that's he was just such a great racer. And Sam, uh, yeah, he's. I mean, that would be a, a, a tremendous addition to the NASCAR Hall of Fame is having him in there. And uh, yeah, I just couldn't say enough good about him for sure. All right. How about Larry Phillips? I mean, that's a name that you know you really have to have had a long um, fan following of, you know, to know who Larry Phillips is, because I mean, when I first got in the sport, honestly, I didn't really know much about Larry at all. And uh, you know, I obviously learned over the years, but here's a guy that, you know, was very instrumental uh, in the sport, uh, you know, back in the day. Tell us about Larry Phillips. Well, Larry is a name that you might not really put together quickly, you know, and that doesn't take anything away from his ability behind the wheel. Uh, you know, you might not use it readily in the same sentence as say a Dale Earnhardt or Richard Petty, mm-hmm. but very successful on the racetrack. He was the first five-time NASCAR weekly series national champion and, you know, in modifieds and just, obviously a great racer i mean somebody that has won and won and won and it's great to see him in that list and in that position to be put in the nascar hall of fame and i think some of those racers should be there you know the the ones like sam art and larry phillips not just the everyday uh, cup series guys because they are the corner foundations of of where we are today without those guys you know, could the cup series have been, you know, built as big as it is. Right. Because, you know, you, these guys, like I said, are the foundation of where we are. And Larry Phillips has done a tremendous uh, job uh, on the short tracks around the country and to, to win five times in the national series like that. I mean, that's, that speaks volumes for his talent and his dedication. Exactly. And uh, yeah. So by all means, uh, he's he's someone else like Sam that should be there for sure. Let's talk about some of the modern era guys that you know they they um, have not been inducted yet. But you know these are names that a lot of the um, fans of today who maybe became NASCAR fans in the last fifteen years, twenty years, uh, more readily identify with than some of the guys from back in the day. Let's talk about guys like Jeff Burton and Ricky Rudd. I mean, Ricky, I thought for sure would have been in by now, but um, you know, Jeff obviously great career as a driver. Then went on to you know, uh, uh, still very uh, uh, strong career in in uh, with uh, in broadcasting with NBC. Let's let's talk about about Jeff first. I mean, um, what kind? I mean, here's a guy who came out of Virginia. Him and his older brother Ward. You know, they they really kind of. Um, they they started from the grassroots level and that talent that they both displayed, you know, eventually got them to the cup level. But, you know, these were, these were really guys that, you know, were really down home, um, you know, grassroots guy. They remind me a lot of like uh, Elliot Sadler. He's another guy that came out of Virginia as well, too. Tell me a little bit about, um, you know, about Jeff Burton and uh, your thoughts about him. Um, and well, I guess we could even talk about Ward, you know, as far as a potential yeah, well. for, well, I can tell you that the thing that comes to mind when I think about Ward and Jeff for the great one of the greatest uh, quotes ever in NASCAR history <laughs> was one time we were talking to the we were talking to Jeff about all right here's the deal you need to come clean here why is there such a difference between 
Ward's strong Virginia accent, <laughs> and, you, and you speak normally. What's the deal with that? And Jeff had the greatest line. He said, well, all I can come up with is, uh, you know, because Ward grew up in the most southern part of the house, and I guess I grew up in the most northern part of the house. Or something, <laughs> right, right, right. Because you, if you didn't know, Ward has got this really deep southern, you know, Virginia-type accent like this. And Ward is, speaks for, I mean, Jeff speaks rather normally, you know, right? But it's just so funny because, and there's no disrespect to Ward or Jeff either one, but there is a distinct difference in the two. And they grew up, you know, eating the same Fruit Loops and drinking the same milk. And, but what is the deal, right? So <laughs> we just, you know, we just give him a hard time. We all chuckled when he said that, but it's such a difference because Ward is something like this. And he just kind of, he, he reminds me of a Southern, uh, Civil War general yeah, sitting on a yeah. horse, right? You know, with the goatee and the gray, you know, uniform kind of thing, right? And it's, it's just, I love them both, and they're, they're really great. But it's just so funny. But you know, talking about Jeff, though, I mean, he's won uh, Darlington Southern Five Hundred, he's won two Coke Six Hundreds, he's got twenty-one wins to his credit. And then he, like Benny Parsons and like Neil Bonnet and like, uh, you know, so many others, uh, Daryl Waltrip's done it. He, he moved from the driver's seat to the behind the microphone. Mm -hmm. And he's been very successful as a, a radio and television broadcaster. And he's just done it all. And, and he's seen his son, Harrison Burton, now in the 21 car for the Wood Brothers. And, you know, so, I mean, they've dedicated their lives to racing and you're right. That was a good point. You pointed out, they started from per, pretty much from go-karts to, to late limited sportsmen, street stocks and made their way up the hard way, mm -hmm. getting, getting into Xfinity and then moving into the cup series. And they're, you know, they're not rich. I mean, they, you know, they didn't have a silver spoon kind of mentality. They had to work really, really hard to get into those rides and get noticed to show team owners that they had the ability uh, to get in the cup series. And of course he was discovered by, by Jack Roush and, and the rest, as they say, is history. But I mean, he won 21 times in his career and he's a great racer. And yeah, eventually I believe he'll also go in the hall of fame, but they were, he and Ward both worked really, really hard to, uh, to win races in the cup series and yeah, great people too. They're just awesome family. And, just think the world of them both, but it's just so funny that their accents, like I said, are just so, so incredibly different. <laughs> and, and he's like, I saw, I can tell you folks, you know, he grew up, his bedrooms in the South and mine's in the North and there you go. But it's, it's you know, you've talked to both of them, yep. right. And they're yep. so, so different on the accent. Exactly. It's kind of like you and me, Ben, you know, when we, when you talk about the town you you're, you're in, and you always say Salisbury and me, the Yankee says, no, it's Salisbury. Like the yeah. state. We'll, we'll forever yeah. There, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. And you know, when I speak to people that are from New York or up North and you know, at, at the end of the conversation, I'm calling to pay my credit card bill or whatever. They're like, I sure do love your Southern accent. And I don't think <laughs> of it, you know, I don't, you know, but I'm sure I have a Southern accent to those up North or out West or whatever. And it's right, just, right. you know, but it's nothing like Wards. Wards is extremely Southern. Exactly. And uh, fun, to, fun to listen to him talk. Though. Good guy. Well, one of the things I was going to mention about Jeff before we move on to Ricky Rudd. Jeff, you know, to me, and, you know, I mean, he was, and it still is, but during his career as a race car driver, 
he was the voice of reason. I mean, he yeah. he was the kind of guy that people would come to to get advice. Uh, and I'm not saying about driving. I mean, just, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, let's admit it. Sports can be a very political kind of game. And motorsports is certainly no stranger to, to politics. But Jeff was, you know, he, he, he kind of took on that role of, de facto sport uh, spokesman if you will for a lot of mm-hmm. his fellow drivers tell i mean and they, they, they called him the what was it the mayor or the senator i always got it confused it was the mayor or senator yeah mayor mayor, mayor okay. i think yeah, yeah tell 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 us about you know how uh, how jeff just had a way of you know turning a sometimes difficult situation into a very easy to understand situation if you will yeah, well, that's true, and very level-headed about things, and he had a very good perspective about things. Uh, and when you went to get an interview with Jeff, you always you you sort of had you walked away thinking, okay, I didn't think of that. All right, that's a good way to look at it, or whatever. And he it was, and I'll tell you something: a lot of fans may not know, but you know, Dale Earnhardt had his eye on Jeff from early on. And this is the plan. I've said this on the podcast before, mm-hmm. but this was the plan. Uh, Dale Earnhardt was going to retire at the end of the 2003 season. And that was already etched in stone. He was going to do that. And um, Jeff was going to be his replacement in the three car. And I talked to other and people in the know who had knew that was going to be the tentative plan. And we didn't get that far because of Dale Earnhardt's death, but that was the idea that Richard and, and Dale had talked about. Okay, when I retire, when it, who do we want in the car? And Jeff Burton was going to be the pick. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and and sadly, we didn't get that far in the game. But that was partly why, because Jeff was level-headed. He was a great driver, somebody that sponsors loved, uh, somebody that Dale trusted, and. Uh, you know, you, because you that even as you know, going into 2001 with a superstar like Dale Earnhardt, a seven time champion, you're already thinking a couple of seasons down the road with all the sponsors and, and the obligations and those types of things. You, you got to have something in the back of your mind. It's not something that you could just do overnight and say, well, I'm going to I won the championship and I'm just going to quit. Well, it's right. not quite that easy. Right. And so that was going to be the pick. And so that says a lot about, about Jeff Burton, how much he was liked by Richard. And then later on, as fate would have it, uh, he did drive for Richard in the 31 car, uh, you know, when sponsors supporting him. But initially, uh, that was what was going to be the plan. Exactly. Final guy I want to talk to you about, and then we we wanted to wrap up everything about, as we normally do every week, um, you know, the episode number and the car number. But before we get to that, one guy that, and I've been, you know, if I was a voter, I would have voted for him the last two, three years, is Ricky Rudd. I mean, the Mm -hmm. Iron Man. I mean, what was it, 700 and some uh, consecutive starts, something like that. Um, You know, and, you know, just... He he was to me, and 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 I mean this in all sincerity to a lot of other drivers out there. But to me, Ricky Rudd was like almost like the quintessential Cup driver. And what I mean by that is great talent. He was not afraid to mix it up on the track and sometimes even off the track. But he was also a very kind guy. You know, I mean, he was. Not a lot of people knew the 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 
easier going, the nicer side of Ricky. I mean, he was really a, a fan favorite, always gave a lot of time to the fans. I mean, he, to me, he was kind of the prototypical guy that if you were to build a, a NASCAR cup driver, he would be the guy that I would take the mold from. Tell me about Ricky Rudd and why do you think he's not in the hall of fame yet? Uh, I think the key word is yet. Uh, he will be. Uh, here's the story. And a lot of people may not know this. Ricky had no desire initially to drive in stock cars. He wasn't, that's not what he wanted to do. He was a great uh, car champion and his idea of racing was Indy cars. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't want to do stock cars and he wanted to win the Indy 500. Right. As did Jeff, as did Jeff Gordon, as did Jimmy Johnson. All, ironically, all three of those guys didn't have any desire to go to NASCAR. And as fate would have it, there was a guy by the name of uh, uh, Cliff Champion, who was uh, a buddy of Ricky's brother, Al Jr., up in Chesapeake, Virginia. And they wanted to, you know, play around in NASCAR. And so uh, Cliff Champion was tied up with his dad, who owned a car. And so they said, well, let's just try this out and see what we think. Well, immediately Ricky started running very well in NASCAR using Cliff Champion's dad's car. And one thing led to another. And, uh, you know, they had one last ditch effort that they put together with Harry Hyde was part of this. I believe this is in 1980, I want to say, aside from Cliff Champion's deal. Mm-hmm. And so Jimmy Maycar, who was an executive with Joe Gibbs, who is married to Patty Jarrett, who is Ned Jarrett's uh, daughter, uh, they, Jimmy Maycar, Harry Hyde, were part of this last-ditch effort. I want to say 80. They went to Charlotte to put all their eggs in this basket. It was going to be make or break. And uh, so as it turns out, Ricky finishes fourth in this October race at Charlotte. So they put all their money in this car, everything they could, and he ran well. Well, he got noticed. And when I'm condensing the story a bit, but when Daryl Waltrip left Die Guard Racing at the end of 80 to go to Junior Johnson, they chose Ricky mm-hmm. to take the ride at Die Guard. So that's pretty much what saved his career. But prior to that, he he really didn't have anything to hang his hat on. And uh, so uh, he goes to Die Guard and then that leads to going to, he gets, I think it was a one-year deal with Die Guard. He goes to Richard Childress mm-hmm. in 82, wins his first race at Sonoma in 83, goes to Bud Moore uh, in 84 and 85, and then goes to Kenny Bernstein. So, the point is that's the ice's career as far as getting with some really good teams. Uh, but initially it was Indy cars. I want to drive Indy cars and it just didn't work out to get into Indy cars. It's okay. I'll try the stock car stuff. And that's the way he was led. And, and then as fate would have it, he starts his own team after leaving Hendrick motorsports wins the brickyard 400 uh, and he had 23 victories too, by the way, mm-hmm. drove, for, drove for some top teams such as Hendrick and Bernstein, as I said, Bud Moore, Richard Childress, his own team, uh, drove for the Wood Brothers, Robert Yates. So he had a tremendous career, didn't win a championship, but he won 23 races and very well loved uh, as far as the fans go, won some big races, uh, great on road courses. Uh, so yeah, he's a, he's a household name as far as uh, being a NASCAR driver. and. 
Yeah, I, I think had a tremendous career. Uh, once, like I said, some big races. So, yeah, a, a given in my in my book, I think he'll he too will eventually become uh, inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. He's already in several halls of fame, including the National Motorsports Press Association Hall of mm-hmm. Fame. Just uh, a, a cornerstone name, I think, and and uh, as far as motorsports, especially stock cars. And uh, yeah, I, I think the world of him myself and uh, very well known in, in motorsports. Exactly. All right, we're coming on a turn four, heading towards the checkered flag. And what we do every single episode, we before we uh, you know close it down for that week, we talk about the car number, which always equates with the car or with the episode of the podcast. So this is episode sixty-eight, Ben. This is kind of following up what happened last week in episode sixty-seven. Episode 68, car number 68. Um, no one has ever taken the 68 to victory lane again. That's it just seems to blow my mind that yeah. there's not been a winner in the 68. Well, that's true. And, and there are numbers that uh, are very prominent going to victory lane and some that just never made it there. But the first time the uh, the number 68 ran a NASCAR actually came on February 11th, 1951. It came on the uh, beach road course down in Daytona Beach before the Daytona International Speedway was built. And a gentleman by the name of Barney Smith drove Mm -hmm. a Plymouth with number four, uh, sorry, number 68 on the doors. He finished 14th in that race. And again, happened on February 11th, 1951. Not sure where he started because it didn't say in the rundown. on driver averages is what we like to use. We thank them for their support, but he finished 14th in that race and he was driving a Plymouth. Wow. Well, you know, the number 68, there've been a number of big names that have driven that number, some for, you know, a one or two off race and some for an extended period of time. And I'm going to mention some of those names, Gary Bettenhausen, Buddy Baker. This is an individual who was, up for the Landmark Award nominee, or she was a Landmark Award nominee this year um, for the Hall of Fame, did not get selected, but Janet Guthrie, you know, one of the uh, uh, most um, uh, influential female drivers in NASCAR history. Then Derek Cope drove the 68 at one point, Bobby Hamilton for a long time drove the 68, and Greg Sachs. And and this is the thing, this is what blows me away. You know, when you have a car number that does not have any wins to its credit, invariably it just does not get picked very often the last time the 68 competed um in a race was 2001 at watkins Glen. it was anthony lazaro who was known as a he's known as a kind of a nascar ringer if you will but the 68 has not raced since 19 since 2001 just kind of blows my mind that's that's 21 years ago it's just amazing yeah, yeah it's been a while and uh you know, you it, time goes by so quick when you don't realize that uh, it's been that long. It, it, that surprises me. I hadn't been used that much, but I, I do remember of the people you mentioned, my personal memory of the number 68, uh, Bobby Hamilton running it with TriStar Motorsports. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a very lime, bright lime yellow car with, with 68 markings on it. And, uh, very memorable race car for sure. And like I say, Bobby Hamilton drove it before he went to drive for Richard Petty. And uh, yeah, just a great, great paint scheme. I remember that. 
You know, I wanted to ask you one thing. I've been meaning to ask you this for the last couple of weeks, and I know we didn't talk about this off the air, but, you know, we, we talk about car numbers and, you know, obviously episode numbers for the Lifetime and NASCAR podcast, but car numbers, what are your thoughts about the new, quote unquote, new car numbers and where they're located on the cars this year? I mean, I'm I'm still kind of getting used to it because after so many years, you know, on the doors, now they're, you know, more like along the, the fender-ish, door-ish area. What are, what are your thoughts about the, the car numbers where they're located at these years, or this year? I am, uh, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of it. And I'll tell you why. I mean, I think it's great for sponsors to have more space on the car. Uh, right. right. Okay. That's a good thing. What I'm not, I'm not a big fan of it because I think the number from day one, other than the, I say maybe in the early fifties where the Hudson Hornets had the number where it is today. I just think the number in the middle of the door is a, a very strong cornerstone foundation thing mm-hmm. in all motorsports. Uh, now they're saying that IMSA I think has it on where it is now, uh, where NASCAR cup series has it. I just always, I think it's really strong in the middle of the door. Um, it's been there for, from the beginning, other than that year or two when it wasn't in the fifties, I think it should be in the middle of the door. That's just a personal preference. It's a historic preference. It's not, this is where we are. It may remain there from now on and that's NASCAR's prerogative, but I, I'm, I'm getting used to it. Let's say that <laughs> Right. Um, you know, I, I just think the, the center of the door has all, it, it's a cornerstone of the sport. And I think that's where it should be, but they've made that choice and I'm going to have to get used to it. That's just me. Well, you know, I agree with you a hundred percent, but I will say this, you know, and again, I, it's going to take me probably another two or three years, more years before I'm really fully, um, on board with the, the moving of the location of the numbers. But I will say this though. Some of the, um, if you want to call it the graphic look of the numbers now where they're at, some of them look really sharp. I mean, um, I think it was, who was it the other day that I watched? Uh, there was a race that kind of the numbers, um, I think it was the 23, I think, of, of Bubba Law, so I remember correctly. It just, it just you know, boom, it hit me, you know, and it, it's, it's just the graphic was just really, you know, very key in my opinion. But, but like you, I mean, I'm still... I still keep on looking at the middle of the, the drivers and the passenger side doors. And I'm saying, where's the number at? Oh, it's not there. Yeah. It's up ahead. You well, know, that kind of thing. Well, in 1952, 53, uh, Herb Thomas and Marshall Teague uh, ran the fabulous Hudson Hornets those years. Mm-hmm. They were light. Uh, Thomas's was a light blue and had fabulous Hudson Hornet down the doors and the number, his number 92 is on the front fender like it is today. And Marshall Teague also had fa- fabulous Hudson Hornet. His was number six on the, on the fender. They ran those a couple of years, and then it went back to mandatory in the middle of the door. I, right. I'm just, I'm a historic buff, and I'm dyed in the wool history of NASCAR, and I just like it in the middle of the door. From a sponsor viewpoint, I see where it gave gives them more of, you know, a place for the fans to see their sponsor markings and I understand that. But I, I'm just a big fan of it being in the middle of the door because that's the way we've done it for 73 or four years now. And mm-hmm. I'm just mm-hmm. that's what I think it should be. 
However, that's what they, they've chosen to change it, and I have to get used to it. I'm 61. I'll be 139 years, and they'll, <laughs> you know, I'll have 39 more years to get used to it. <laughs> well, you know, so, it, and if, if I don't, I don't, but that's just the way it is. Well, you know, I, it's funny you should say it because I was thinking about this the other day. You know, we have, you know, each episode correlates with car numbers. Well, yeah, when we hit a hundred episodes here in about 32 weeks, uh, you know, what are we going to do going forward on three-digit numbers? You know, I can tell you there, I can tell you there was a time in NASCAR history then they, they did actually run three numbers on the cars uh, for some races and we'll, we'll be able to have a show. because. (laughs) They did. Uh, NASCAR saved us by, in 1964, uh, they ran some road course races. And if you were uh, not a regular in NASCAR, but you went to to Riverside, you ran three numbers. For instance, Dan Gurney ran a number 121 mm-hmm. uh, for the Wood Brothers and won some races in the number 121 because he was not a regular on the NASCAR, uh, then the Grand National Series. So they saved us by doing that. So there, you know, we can talk about the, and there were some, also some Carl Kike for uh, Chryslers that ran three numbers, the number 300 and uh, the one number 100. So yeah, we're, we're safe. We can, we can do that show. Well, you know, we can also add, you know, zero, 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 one, two, zero, through, you know, through zero, nine. So that's 10 more episodes right there. We can yeah, talk so about there you go. So we're, that's right. That's right. There well, will come a time, though, that we're going to run out of that. We're going to come up with a new format. But hey, that's, that's you know, a few, few shows down the road. We'll exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah. Ben, you know, just really, as always, enjoyed this uh, episode. And, you know, just, you know, there are so many. It, it you really brought back a lot of memories about a lot of the guys that you know, and and this is not coming down on the NASCAR Hall of Fame. It's not coming down on the selectors, the voters. I mean, it's just it's a tough decision for a lot of those voters because they have you know these these there's so many names out there, and you can only uh, pick so many per year. I mean, it used to be five the first year, uh, or was it the first 10 years? I think it was, they had five and then they mm-hmm. cut it back to three plus right. the, um, the landmark award, but you know, it's a tough job to, you know, vote who's going to be, you know, um, um, chosen, who's not going to be chosen, who goes next year, you know, and that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I really enjoyed this episode because we, I really got to learn a lot more. Like I, I learned something from you every, every single week. And I mean that very sincerely. So, but well, thank you. Well, you know, Jerry, I've been on that panel two years as, as president of the national motorsports press association. Mm-hmm. I was on that panel in 2018 and 2019. And uh, yeah, it, it's a tough, tough decision because you're looking at a who's who, uh, you're looking at a, a, a who's who list and, uh, it, all these guys are just so incredibly talented. They're icons of the sport and you have to narrow that down to only five of gosh, 25 people or something. And right. it's incredibly hard. And so, um, it's just really, really difficult to come up with it. And so, and, you know, it's just so, so hard to do, but you just have to just really narrow it down and narrow it down and narrow it down. But eventually, like I said, through the the podcast today, I believe all these guys eventually will get in and they deserve to be in and their time will come. And that's, that's what we just have to look back on and uh, their time will come. 
Exactly. Well, our time has come to wrap it up for the, this week. So uh, for my, my buddy Ben White over there, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Thank you, everyone, uh, for listening to episode number 68 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. We'll be back with episode number 69, of course, next week. So thanks for listening. Enjoy uh, your week. Enjoy your weekend. Stay safe out there. And we will talk to you next time right here on the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Take care, everyone. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.